The following Rarecast podcast is made possible through support from Pfizer and Horizon Therapeutics. Hey, Rarecast listeners, join us for Global Genes Live, a rare patient advocacy unsummit, September 14th to the 25th. This two-week virtual event will feature a variety of interactive and educational events, meetups, workshops, and performances. Whether you're a rare disease veteran or new to the community, we invite you to connect and engage with us and others through interactive activities. To learn more, visit globalgenes.org forward slash live. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. of health insurance can appear complex and confusing. For young adults with rare and chronic conditions, navigating their coverage options for the first time may also require them to consider access to specific physicians, services, and therapies. We spoke to Colleen Heisman, a clinical social worker with the Bridges Adult Transition Program at Boston Children's Hospital, and Sneha Dave, founder and executive director of the Health Advocacy Summit, about the issues young adults with rare and chronic conditions need to think about as they seek health coverage, the types of choices they'll face, and how to best go about navigating this dense and opaque world. As a note, Look for more topics like this at this year's Global Genes Live event and going forward as the organization moves to increase educational efforts around managing the financial challenges of living with a rare disease. Colleen, Snea, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. We're going to talk about health insurance, the transition from pediatric to adult care, and what young adults with rare and chronic conditions need to know about health insurance. Before we get into any of the nitty-gritty of healthcare insurance, when should a person with a rare or chronic condition begin to think about health insurance needs, and is this any different than anyone else of the same age? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, With transition, we often say that the earlier, the better. Um, It's never too early to start thinking about transition. Um, Because in terms of insurance, there are some pretty clear guidelines. Most states, um, young adults are on the state health care plan. They're able to stay on until they're 19. Um, For young adults who are on parents' private insurance, they are able to stay on until 26 years old. However, you never want to get to that point and then have a very drastic cutoff in care. Um, So in thinking about health insurance and thinking about your transition care, it is important to be thinking about that well before you're turning 19 or 26, depending on your insurance. Um, You know, for young adults that don't have a rare chronic condition, health, health insurance may not be at the forefront of their mind, but 
um, since they're not interacting with the healthcare system as frequently. But what is important to really think about when considering health insurance is looking at, okay, what are the different costs? How often are you accessing healthcare, whether that's through medical visits, um, and nowadays, you know, whether it's on telehealth or in person, what prescriptions are you taking? What medical supports are you needing? Um, how often are you accessing all of these, um, all of these care aspects? And, you know, what doctors and what specialists are really covered by your insurance? Um, so one thing to kind of think about with transition and for young adults is as you're kind of getting older and taking more independence over your care, you know, is the young adult starting to make calls and refill the prescription on their own or whether are they starting to schedule appointments? You know, do they know who their insurance, who, what insurance they have um, and how to call them? And so it's kind of it's helpful to think about what's going on behind the scenes. Um, in order to be able to access the medical system and kind of with what frequency. And that often is through your health insurance. This can be a, a complex area for anyone to navigate. Where should a young adult with a, a rare and chronic condition begin just to orient themselves? Yes, it is very complicated and very individualized. And, you know, this is even part of my job as a social worker, and I'm often confused by the PPOs, HMOs, the ACOs. So there's a lot of abbreviations. There's a lot of different words to know, but really kind of some of the basics when you're considering your health insurance um, to think about are, you know, there's always the premium. The premium is the amount that you pay to belong to a health plan on a monthly basis. Then you want to think about the deductible. The deductible is the amount that you pay out of pocket before the insurance kicks in. So what you're what you would be paying before insurance then uh, comes into play. Then you want to think about the amount you pay for covered health insurances. So that's when insurance will cover some of the visit or the care that you're receiving. Usually there then is a what's called a copay, and that's either a dollar amount or a percentage of the total. Um, you want to think about what that amount will be and then what the out-of-pocket limit is. And that's the amount that you will pay before insurance insurance takes over covering all of the costs. Um, so those are kind of the four like keywords. Um, I will say the best place to start is just knowing what insurance you have and how to contact them. Um, and whether that's, you know, you have your insurance card and you keep it on you or you have your insurance information in an app on your phone that you know where it is. Um, a lot of young people that I work with use the health app on their iPhone. You're able to enter that information um, and have it you know, in a secure place, but you wanna be able to know what your insurance is and how to contact them um, and use them with quite with, frequently. Um, it's also a good place to start with your current providers, asking them any questions. A lot of times where you're receiving care, there may be a financial counselor. Um, they're also a go-to resource as well as the social worker, a part of your team. Um, and in knowing what insurance you have, you're gonna wanna know a little bit of the basics, You know whether you have an HMO, which is a health maintenance organization, and that means that you can see providers within a certain network, or if you have a PPO, which is preferred provider organization, and that means you can see any providers as long as they accept your insurance. Um, so those are kind of some of the basics, but I will say some other 
just general resources if you want more information. Um, gotransition.org is a great website that has a ton of resources about making that transition from pediatric to adult care, as well as kind of having a quiz and some FAQs just about what it looks like to transition. Um, healthcare.gov is another site that shows all of the different coverage plans that are available, depending on what state you're in. Um, Healthcare for All is an organization that we have here in Massachusetts, which is a great resource as well um, if you're in Massachusetts. And then here at Boston Children's Hospital, our Social Work Transition Committee put together a number of brochures that also really guide the process, and they're available on our external website um, if you just search uh, adult transition at uh, Boston Children's Hospital, you'd be able to find that as well. And what options does someone need to consider in terms of where to get insurance? Yeah, another great question. Um, as I said, so um, if you are on a state health insurance plan as a child, you are able to stay on that until you're 19. When you are 19, if you have a disability or a certain health condition, you may be able to qualify for your own plan, but you would need to reapply for that health insurance through the state um, where you are the head of household at that age. So that's one option. The other option is to access to kind of purchase a plan and you'd be able to do that through the healthcare.gov, which is an online marketplace where you can kind of shop around for different insurance plans that would best meet your needs. The other option is if you're working, um, a lot of employers, if you're a full-time employee, will provide health insurance through the employer and that they then kind of pay a portion of your insurance and then you pay into the insurance as well. Um, it comes out of your paycheck. Um, that's another option. And then the other option, you know, for some young adults, they are able to stay on their parents' insurance plan up until 26. And then for some, depending on the um, medical condition, they are able to stay on the plan even beyond 26, but that is really kind of plan specific. Um, one other option for young adults is if they're in college to look into the student health program. Um, and that's the insurance plan that the college offers. Um, and then also within the college, you know, sometimes the plans maybe don't offer enough care for someone with a chronic or rare condition, but they would want to consider then going to the Office of Disability or Student Health Services, which is often on campus, to be able to pro provide more information about more specific um, coverage. But in kind of those different options, again, you really want to be thinking about how often are you accessing the health system? Um, where are you accessing it, what kind of medical equipment you're using, what kind of prescriptions you're taking, and what providers are covered by what insurance plan. Um, I can't stress enough how it really is an individual decision, you know, just because your friend is on a certain plan and maybe they have cystic fibrosis, it doesn't mean that that same plan is great for you um, if you have another chronic chronic condition. So it's really best to kind of talk with your providers and also your family and thinking about what plan makes the most sense for you based on your rare um, condition. A young adult may be hearing terms that they're not terribly familiar with. They may be weighing a lot of information. What's the best way they can go about determining whether a 
specific policy is right for them. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, one thing, you know, we sometimes look at is even breaking it down, um, kind of weighing the different options and writing it out of like uh, some of the terms that I defined earlier of, you know, what like a premium. Okay, how much am I paying of the premium? Um, and what does that mean? And how often would I be paying that? Um, and then based on like, okay, what would the deductible be and how much? So there are absolutely a lot of different terms, um, but certainly reach out to financial counselors that are at the hospital or wherever you receive your care, as well as the social worker and family. And you know, even have conversations with who's managing your health insurance plan right now, whether it be your parents or um, another uh, care provider. And what about mental health services? Are these generally covered by insurance? Yes. So as of 2014, all insurance plans on the marketplace, as well as state and federal programs are required to cover mental health and um, substance use disorder services as well. One of the challenges that people run into is that the provider themselves may not accept that particular insurance. So oftentimes a provider will have um, kind of a different, of like pal um, kind of a panel of insurances that they accept. And so it, what's important is that when you're looking for a mental health provider is that you're making sure that they accept your insurance. Um, some good places to start when you're considering mental health support are definitely with your primary care provider. Um, there may actually be a behavioral health services or specialist within the medical home um, and within their office that they work with. So you know that that's within the network of your insurance. Um, you can also reach out directly to your insurance company. Um, on the back of your card, there's often a number and they wanna be able to be a resource for you, not just someone you speak to about complaint, um, claims, but you want to be, they want to be able to provide you with different supports and resources so they can, you can call and say that you're looking for a mental health provider in your area and they would be able to give you a list of in-network providers. Um, again, if you're looking on your own, whether it's through like an online directory or through psychology today, you will want to really look at the insurance that different providers accept as that is kind of the limiting uh, factor at times. And even one thing to consider with so many things being telehealth, some private insurance companies I know are even kind of waiving co-pays. Um, so you'll want to kind of just be able to know the specifics of what your insurance, you know, maybe that they may be covering more than they normally would given kind of the times that we're in right now. Let's bring Snea into the conversation. Snea, you're a founder and executive director of the Health Advocacy Summit. What exactly is the Health Advocacy Summit and, and how did it come about? Yeah, so this is Sneha. Um, the Health Advocacy Summit is a nonprofit organization that facilitates events and programs for young adults with chronic and rare diseases. Um, and I say young adults, but we also very much focus on adolescents as well. Um, so I myself was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis when I was six years old. And um, I was diagnosed with a rare disease a couple of years ago as well. Um, so I live with chronic antibiotic refractory pouchitis. Um, and so as I was, so I lived in a form of isolation for a few years from the middle 
of um, from middle school to the middle of high school. And as I emerged from this isolation due to the severity of my condition, I realized that there were a lot of educational, um, institutional, financial, psychosocial challenges of growing up with a, um, a chronic and uh, cyclical and lifelong disease. And so I brought together 14 young adults in the state of Indiana in October 2017 to discuss topics of navigating insurance, navigating the education system, um, figuring out you know what jobs can work best for someone with their con- with with keeping in mind their condition, um, and and talking a lot about the psychosocial factors, mental health, and so we developed this first event in Indiana, and then we got inquiries from other parts of the nation. So in 2018, we expanded to North Carolina and uh, South Texas, so um, very much on the border, basically, of Texas and Mexico, which is very interesting with cultural perceptions of chronic disease. And then in 2019, we expanded to San Francisco, California. And then in 2020, we we're supposed to be in um, uh, six different states. Unfortunately, those were all canceled due to the uh, pandemic. However, we've been doing a lot of other virtual programming in addition to year-long programming so that we can ensure that um, young adults with chronic and rare conditions at this time have the tools and resources to be be proactive, whether that be in the education system um, or whether that be navigating the workplace for the first time. This can be a, a difficult time making the transition from pediatric care to adult care for, for patients. The insurance transition is likely to occur after uh, someone has established uh, new relationships with providers for adult care. Colleen, how disruptive can insurance be to being able to continue that relationship with the provider, and how should that figure into the determination of coverage? Yes, that is a great question. And um, as I said earlier, it is such an individual process transition that really, you know, when we, so I'm a social worker with the Bridges Adult Transition Program at Boston Children's Hospital, and one of the things we look at first is what insurance um, patients have before we start to make that transition to adult care. We also really consider who their primary care provider is and if they're connected to a primary care provider. Um, That's the thing we first transition, you know, regardless of how many different specialties follow them, we always start with the primary care provider because in the adult system, that really stands as the medical home. And so when we're thinking about transition, we look to match to um, establish them with a primary care provider that accepts their insurance. And then from there, the primary care provider will be able to make referrals to any special provider, specialty providers as needed. Um, Transition is certainly a challenging time for the young adult. I'm sure Stan could speak to that as well Mm -hmm. as the family and really kind of, and for the providers as well, acknowledging that some of these providers have worked with the young adults for years, you know, some even their whole lives taking care of them. And so I think what's important is really to be able to acknowledge that, that this is a change and a transition for everyone. Um, and that's really why we start, we recommend talking about transition as early and as often as possible. Um, sometimes what we've run into is that providers will retire and we never want the transition to be based around a provider's retirement. We want the transition to be based around when the young adult 
is ready um, and you know when we've kind of established them with providers that are um, well equipped to take care of them. And so we want you know young adults to really feel empowered to be able to bring up the topic of transition to their providers um, when when they're ready and you know you can't really kind of set it on an age, but we do say kind of in that young adolescence young adult when they start taking more independence over their care. And Snail, when you speak to young adults about this transition in their health insurance, what are the biggest concerns they, they express to you? Yeah, um, I mean, this topic is incredibly complex, as Colleen has highlighted. Um, I mean, I'm 22 years old, and I am still navigating this process, even though I've heard about insurance. I mean, probably hundreds of times at this point. Um, so I think, you know, some of the biggest concerns I hear is that we don't know how to take that initial step and we don't know how to often navigate conversations with our insurance companies either. So, you know, for example, I remember the first time that I ever talked to an insurance company, I was biking to um, one of my college classes. I put my bike away and I took out my insurance card and there were four or five numbers listed on the back of that insurance card. And I was extremely confused because this was the first time I was ever navigating insurance by myself. At this point, I didn't even have the word transition. Um, and I never actually had a social worker as part of my care either. So um, this was extremely foreign to me. And so I expected um, this conversation with the uh the uh, insurance company to last about 10 minutes to just get one of my infusions approved. But little did I know that that encounter would be a total of probably eight hours um, across a week span. Um, and so I think there's just so many challenges uh, that come about that a lot of us are not prepared for. And I feel like that's one of the biggest concerns that we have. Um, and, and even moving forward, we're not sure, you know, the healthcare landscape, how it's going to change and how we're going to have to plan our careers around what job we um, what job we want to have and and how, you know, a national political landscape can have a really big impact. Um, on our future. So there's a lot of different stressors of uncertainty that come with navigating insurance um, that aren't often addressed um, as real challenges. And just to highlight again, I think, you know, in, in Indiana where I'm at, I never had a social worker. I never realized that there is a huge process that should take place um, for kids transitioning or young adults transitioning to adult care. And I feel like places like Boston Children's and other places are really pioneering this effort in recognizing that this is not something we can just throw at young adults. This is something that has to be a gradual process of really learning. And there has to be care coordination to ensure that young adults can confidently talk to insurance companies and figure out the process um, when they're you know, in college or in the workplace for the first time. I'd like to hear from each of you, but what role do you see patient organizations playing in, in helping young adults make this transition in, in insurance. Uh, Snea? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think this is a really interesting question because a lot of times it seems like patient organizations are focused in um, cities or, you know, areas that are, they're, they're geographically concentrated, I'd say. So a lot of times um, it seems like a lot of the patient organizations work in places like Boston, New York City, San Francisco, Los Angeles, but there's not a lot of information for those of us in the Midwest 
um, for example, or those of us who are in different geographical locations where navigating insurance might be look a little bit different, especially for things like Medicaid. Um, and so, you know, I, I would I would say that patient organizations have a huge role in um, especially for families um, starting to put the topic of insurance in, um, you know, families who are just coming to these patient organizations for the first time and, and providing them resources and toolkits. But I also think that it's not something that we can recreate and remake. So Family Voices is a phenomenal organization that has great resources about insurance and navigating insurance. This is not something that we as patient advocacy organizations need to recreate. I think this is something that we need to just do a better job of disseminating and really spreading awareness about. Because I mean, you know, we a lot of parents don't think about their child's insurance when they're like eight or nine years old. This is something that comes to mind when we're 18 and about to go to college, starting to look for a work, a job. So I think this is something that we have to think about a lot sooner. And patient organizations have a role um, to disseminate information that already exists, not necessarily recreate these uh, resources, because there are quite a few great ones out there. Colleen, anything you'd add? Yeah, absolutely. I would echo uh, what Sneha said in that it, they play a huge role um, I will just add, you know, two quick things that I think one place where patient organizations can also really um, provide guidance and really kind of assess is that they have direct access to patients and are often kind of a trusted resource among patients and families. And so being able to gather like, okay, what are some of the concerns that patients and families have? and um, helping them with the advocacy role um, and really advocating on their behalf. You know, I often tell patients that they're in the driver's seat of their own care and that, you know, we as providers and also kind of any anyone else involved is really passengers along the ride. And we're there to kind of support and whether that's handing a map or whether that's handing water or telling them where to come off at the rest stop um, is really dependent on kind of what that individual needs. Um, and so being able to kind of have a platform where they can advocate for what their needs are is really important. Um, and just going back a little bit on one thing uh, that was mentioned, kind of as Sneha said, some of the anxiety around making the phone call to insurance. Absolutely. Um, I hear that a lot from young adults, and I can't tell you how many times I've either role played phone calls with um, patients as well as even sometimes made the phone call with them um, just to alleviate a little bit of anxiety because it is really challenging to know what to say. And especially in this day and age where everything is over text or um, you know, just to be able to kind of have a script and the language um, is huge. The fragmentation of our healthcare system really adds to the complexities <laughs> that young adults have to wrestle with. It's a time of life when, when people can be quite mobile. They could be going to college in a different state or graduate school or pursuing a, a career opportunity that may move them from one location to another. How does mobility or relocation figure into the decision of where to get coverage? Sneha? Yeah, so um, this is something that I recognize was a huge issue um, when I first experienced uh, moving to another state for an internship, actually, um, I had an internship in Boston last summer. And um, I'll just give you a little narrative surrounding how this can be a challenge. Um, so I 
was getting infusions in my home state of Indiana. And um, I was at an internship in Boston for about two months. And um, during this time, I had to receive an infusion um, during the two months where I was in Boston. And I hadn't realized this, but I had to um, go, I had to establish care in Boston and get a, a, a medical professional to prescribe um, that same infusion that I was receiving in Indiana for me to be able to receive um, and for my insurance to be able to cover uh, the infusion in Boston. So it was a process that took over 17 hours for me, not only calling my insurance company, um, you know, and, and, my, and th my doctor in Indiana had gotten my dosage wrong. Um, so it was just like so many logistical issues with getting a 30 minute infusion in a different state that really made me realize that this is a huge problem for a lot of us young people who want to have internships or who want to be moving across the country and having different experiences um, in that we have to establish care. So I had to go see a, a, a medical professional at Massachusetts General Hospital who then prescribed or basically okayed me to get um, my 30 minute infusion. And so I think that this is something that is increasingly an issue as, as we as young adults are becoming a lot more mobile. Um, you know, I always recommend that when any young adult is thinking about college, they're also thinking about where they're going to get care or if the place that they're moving to for college or for an internship or whatever it may be um, might have a specialized center that might be actually able to take care of them um, in the way that they feel is best. So, for example, someone moving from Boston to Indiana for college um, might look different because they might have been receiving specialized care in Boston where same care they might not be able to get in Indiana. And it's up to the young adult as to whether they want to travel back to Boston to get care and make that uh, move several times. So there's a lot of complexities that come with moving out of state for whatever it may be and wanting to get care out of state. And I'm sure Colleen has a lot more to say on this topic as well. Well, Colleen, before you weigh in, let me, let me ask you this. If, if someone is getting their insurance through a college, it may be a policy that that's fairly limited compared to what they might get on their own or or through a an employer. Uh, are there options for supplementing insurance, or would someone have to go out and, and get a policy on their own if if they found what they were getting either through a college or employer were inadequate? Yeah. So one option, you know, if you if it is a college student and they are connected to either the Office of um, Student Health or Disability Services, that would be a good place to start. Um, for a lot of young adults uh, with disabilities or chronic conditions, they may also be eligible for SSI. Um, and depending on kind of how long they've been on SSI, they may also be eligible for Medicare. And Medicare um, is the health insurance kind of that is typically for either adults over 65 or adults with under 65 that have a disability. Um, there is some kind of, there are specific situations where you're only eligible, you know, if you've been on SSI for like two years. So you'll want to kind of just be able to work with them to be see if you are eligible to receive that, but that is an option. Um, and then sometimes also the state insurance plan uh, is available for 
adults with disabilities. They may have to fill out a disability supplement form, um, but that would also then qualify them for the state health insurance as well, which is an option. You know, we talk about this as a, as a health issue, but it, it can represent a significant financial liability. Are there places to go to learn how to help manage the financial obligations or obtain financial support? Um, I, I guess, yeah, I could take this. So I think one interesting tool or resource that I realized that could have been really helpful for me and is something that I'm seeing some of our young adult um, community, young adult patient community members tapping into is vocational rehabilitation counselors and particularly private vocational rehabilitation counselors that can help um, these young adults guide uh, or help guide these young adults through uh, financial resources and financial literacy. I think it's tough because um, vocational rehabilitation counselors um, are not always funded by the government. And depending on the disability, they're not always accessible for young adults with chronic and rare conditions. Um, so there are private voc rehab counselors that might be able to help um, guide these young adults through various financial resources. But I mean, I think, you know, the whole SSI, Supplemental Security Income, um, there's a lot to learn with that, but I think it's a really great resource, especially for young adults with chronic and rare conditions that are not ready to go to college or that are not able to work um, because there are additional addendums sort of to the SSI um, system, such as ABLE accounts, which are really something to look into as well. Um, but yeah, there are quite a few financial resources online, but I, I think, you know, another huge thing is just talking to people. I think that's where we see a lot of these young adults thriving the most is by learning off of each other's experiences, because what is online, I think at this moment is a little bit often far removed from what something, um, what we might be able to understand at you know, where we are in life. So um, I'd say like the, the best way is to talk to people and find people um, as to how they've navigated these financial resources or have um, learned about them. But once again, kind of as Colleen mentioned, Got Transition is really great and Family Voices is also a really great resource. Snow, you touched on this earlier, but we mm -hmm. are in election year. Healthcare seems unsettled and a moving target of sorts. How much attention do people need to be paying here? Oh, I think, um, I mean, this election is going to be crucial in particular. I think that, um, I mean, I, you know, we, I, I feel like we as, as, as people with chronic and rare conditions often live with a lot of uncertainty because things move so fast. Um, and so I feel like personally, I've gotten used to the fact that I have to accept that I'm not going to be able to control the healthcare political environment, but that I can plan for myself and look for myself um, and, and find careers that that will be best suited to for me, um, kind of no matter where the healthcare scene goes, um, where I can interpret. But I think, you know, things that I'm looking at as someone who has a little bit of background in um, in uh, interning at pharmaceutical companies and um, researching in public health is I'd be very curious to see um, the antitrust and how um, these big monopolistic industries and, and that sort of thing can be broken up a little bit more um, because I think that'll give a, a lot more power to patients um, and, and choices and options. So, um, I mean, that's just a, an issue that's personally important to me and something that I'll be looking forward to in this election and beyond. Colleen Heisman, clinical social worker in the Bridges Adult Transition Program at 
Boston Children's, and Sneha Dave, founder and executive director of the Health Advocacy Summit. Thank you both for your time today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.